News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 3rd. It's show number 39 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. Of course, we'll talk with Todd Zola, our Talk with Todd commentator, about players to acquire for rebuilding in keeper leagues, and much more. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Mets right-handed starting pitcher Noah Syndergaard, San Francisco second baseman Joe Panic, and more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson looking at Miguel Sano, the Yankees rotation, and more. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at a July 4th blockbuster matchup. It's Matt Harvey of the Mets in Los Angeles to face the Dodgers in Zach Greinke and other matchups. And in Master Notes, Jimmy Paredes, a feel-good story? Not for BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Fourth of July weekend is upon us. I'm not much for hot dogs, apple pie, or Chevrolet, but we gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. One of the fun things at BaseballHQ.com is the speculator column. For many years, it was written single-handedly by Ray Murphy. He's now sharing the load around a little bit. And Brent Hershey, his co-general manager, takes a turn once in a while. And in his recent speculator column, he said that Noah Syndergaard, the Mets starting pitcher, a rookie, is a great buy low, especially for keeper leagues, and maybe even for the second half of this year. You know, I think the interesting thing with with uh, that column that Brent wrote is he what he did was take the uh, the call ups that have happened recently and look at where they're likely to be in two years. And on Syndergaard, he said he'll be playing the role of Zach Greinke to Matt Harvey's Clayton Kershaw. And, you know, th- this is a guy with real skills uh, who could could really break out in the next year or two. He's had some bad, some really bad luck in terms of keeping his ERA elevated right now, but. As Brent said, through nine starts, 9.1 dom, 11% swinging strike rate, um, 64% first strikes, uh, 141 BP. I mean, everything you would want to see in a young starter is happening. As Brent said, this looks and a fastball that's averaging 96.9, but but still an ERA that's around five. And so, as Brent said, this looks a lot like Gary Cole did in the second half of 2014. Uh, and we've seen what Gary Cole did this year as as a result of that. So, yeah, Norris Syndergaard is a guy definitely that's now is the time to buy low on him, I think, because uh, he's pitched well over the past months. Uh, he's had a couple of bad starts, and that ERA is going to start coming down, and guys are going to catch on. This is somebody they want to hang on to uh, in a keeper league. And so I, I think a good guy to buy low on right now because I think he could help through, throughout the second half. And, and time might not be on your side. Uh, in the last 31 days, he had a very unfortunate ERA of over five, as you said, 
based on a, a hit rate of 38%, which is really high, and a strand rate of 63%, which is very, very low, and that was partly caused by home run trouble. But his expected ERA over the last month has been 293, and for the year overall, his expected ERA is just barely over 3 at 320-some. And, and Noah Syndergaard has everything you want in a pitcher except luck so far, but his last start was really good. Eight innings, one run, struck out uh, five guys, looked very dominant. The idea is to grab him while you can, and while you can might not be for very much longer. Uh, Speaking of the Mets rotation, they went to a six-man rotation, which may cut into the value of some of their starters because they get fewer starts, but on the other hand, it may allow them to pitch all year rather than hitting innings limits of various kinds. And another pitcher in that rotation that got covered at BaseballHQ.com in the Playing Time Tomorrow column was Stephen Matz. Well, Stephen Matz came up, uh, you know, we'd been anticipating Stephen Matz's debut and because he was absolutely fantastic at AAA Las Vegas and really dominating the hitter-friendly PCL league and then then came up and uh, pitched very well in his in his first start. And so the Mets are clearly going to keep him in the rotation. Uh, and, and going to a six-man rotation makes a lot of sense for the Mets at this point because they've got guys whose innings they need to limit. Uh, they've got Matt Harvey who's been injured. They've got Jacob deGrom who's been injured. They've got Syndergaard who's a young guy. They've got Matt who's a young guy. Uh, they're reporting that Matt's may only throw another 80 to 90 innings. So going to a six-man rotation makes a lot of sense. It also means that you're not going to get as many innings out of these starters as you would otherwise, but it may help keep all of them healthy and keep them pitching for the entire year. Steven Matz had a PQS four in his first start against Cincinnati. Also got the win. He looked pretty sharp, seven and two thirds. He only gave up two earned runs, both on homers, which might be a harbinger of things to worry about in the future. But you know, he struck out six guys, walked three. It's an old-fashioned quality start and a PQS four. That's pretty good. Yeah, it, it is indeed. That's for you know, for a, a beginning for the first start in the majors. That's really quite good. And the guy on the bump here that may be uh, may be headed out the door from the rotation would be John Nice. Um, it's possible needs to get traded anytime over the next month. Uh, it's possible he could go back into a, um, a kind of swing man or a long relief sort of role. So that's the guy I think I would worry about if I had him on my roster in terms of where he's going to be and what he's going to do over the rest of the year. We're projecting Stephen Matz for uh, about seven more quality starts in 13 starts overall, which isn't bad. Nice ERA, 342 and a whip of 115, worth around $12 or so. Not a huge strikeout guy. He's right around league average at seven strikeouts per nine. But Stephen Matz, definitely somebody, if he's not already snapped up in your league, definitely worth taking a look at. Stephen Nickrand, our longtime starting pitcher buyer's guide column, Nick, has also taken over the batting buyer's guide, and he looked at first-half base performance value leaders, and under the radar, Joe Panic of San Francisco, a second baseman there, and uh, he's a player who's a very interesting guy because he seems to do a lot of things well, but nothing well enough to draw a huge amount of attention, which could keep his price down. Yeah, you know, it's amazing that, that we've got a Joe Panic's putting together a $20 season at this point, and is is really under the radar. I mean, I you know, uh, you, you've you've got uh, uh, probably an easy guy to get in some leagues if they because the the owner may not trust him entirely simply because he's never heard of him. And at this point, there's nothing outstanding in his line: six homers, thirty RBIs, three stolen bases, batting three sixteen. Uh, nothing to write home about. But you put all of that together, forty one runs scored. Put all that together, you've got a really solid ball player here. And you look back at last season. I mean, this is not this is not something new. Uh, look back at last season. Joe Panic hit uh, hit 305 over 269 at bats. This year he's up to 316 over 294 at bats. His XBA is a little bit lower than that, 287. But 
at the same time, you think, you know, uh, 287 isn't bad either in, in this day and age for a guy who's going to hit a few home runs and uh, going to have probably double-digit homers, double-digit stolen bases by the time the uh, uh, the year is out. If uh, So, uh, you know, certainly a guy to look at. Uh, he's not going to hurt you at all at second base. Seems to have a really good floor because he makes uh, good contact, 87% contact rate, 0.82i. Uh, so uh, you, a guy you're probably not going to worry about tanking on you all of a sudden uh, and uh, may actually help you in uh, every category. Especially stolen bases, I thought it was a real interesting point that Stephen made in the column that Joe Panic has really good speed. His speed is well above league average, and yet he doesn't amass the kind of stolen base totals you might expect. And Stephen says he could be a 20 stolen base plus type of player if he just gets the green light. He's only taking off for a stolen base attempt about 6% of the time that he has the opportunity. Yep, and so that's something to watch for. That that could lead to the kind of breakout when he suddenly gets everybody's attention because his speed index is, is well, is above average. Uh, and uh, it, it's showing, I think, he's, he's got, uh, got quite a few doubles, so that's where he's getting that speed index uh, in spite of the not getting the green light on stolen bases. So... Uh, I think Stephen made a good point in, in that regard. In 2014, Nick, no stolen bases, no stolen base attempts. Isn't that odd for a guy that you know can run? I mean, it, I know it's often managerial philosophy. They don't like to steal because they have big bats coming up behind them and so forth. But just getting up to 5% stolen base opportunities, Joe Panic has already stolen three bases. And so if you imagine he was getting 15 20%, gosh, the sky's practically the limit. Yeah, it may be, and you know, but you look at that at that no stolen bases last year and a speed, a speed rating of one thirty nine. You know, the guy was doing something to show that kind of speed, so uh, it, it's there and it's latent at this point. Uh, and maybe as long as the Giants are not having to play small ball to win, that they won't uh, won't let him loose. But uh, uh, it's always good to know that that could happen at any moment. Nick, at BaseballHQ.com, one of the columns in the scouting area that I find really interesting is called The Watch List. And it, as you know, it's made up of players who are not necessarily top prospects. That is, they're not high draft picks. They're not necessarily at the top of their organizational charts even. But circumstances suggest that they might get a shot to play in the big leagues. And, and as we know, a huge part of player value is opportunity. Just the chance to get on the field and show what you can do and maybe surprise some people and put up some numbers. And usually it does include guys who have very limited major league exposure, like uh, this week, Trace Thompson, a prospect of the White Sox. There's uh, Tyler Duffy, a pitcher in the Minnesota system. These guys have not played in the big leagues. But down at the bottom of the column this week, Arizmendi Alcantara, the Chicago utility man, and they say that maybe he's got a shot to come back and play for the Cubs. You know, Alcantara started, in the, the league, started the year uh, in the majors, uh, uh, excited, I think, a lot of fantasy owners because of his possibilities in that regard, and a guy who can play a lot of different positions, so that's always useful on your, on your fantasy team. And so th- then he went two for 26 and got sent down because he wasn't making any hitting the ball at all and probably was doing nothing for his psyche uh, at that point uh, and just getting worse and worse as the as the every at-bat progressed. So they sent him down, and the column looks at, what the column talks about with Alcantara at the moment is several things. First of all, the Cubs have got a problem in the outfield, uh, and that's where Alcantara could come back perhaps and, and, and help them a bit. Um, secondly, his we're seeing some improvement in those base performance values that were so bad before he got sent down. Now, when he got sent, uh, at this point, 7% fly ball rate, which is not going to do anything. 
but 26% at this point in the minor leagues. That's still low, but a lot better than 7%. So his contact rate has been better, 73% contact rate. We're only making 66% contact when he was in the majors. So some improvement in those base performance skills that uh, might carry over. And the thing we know about Alcantara is here's a guy that can can run. He's got some power, uh, can do a lot of things for you. I mean, we're looking at 11 stolen bases, only one caught stealing uh, so far at, at AAA and 10 home runs. And uh, as that column pointed out, one of only two qualified hitters in the PCL with double-digit marks in both home runs and stolen bases at this point in the season. So Alcantara might be on the way back. Uh, I was interested to see him in, the, in that in that column this week, uh, certainly a guy to uh, keep an eye on, and certainly a guy at this point that you may want to hold on if you had him on your roster and were thinking about dumping him. I'm always surprised when I look at Alcantara's 2014 record, Nick. He had 10 home runs last year at the big league level, despite some fairly pedestrian skills. He swings and misses, uh, strikes out about a third of his plate appearances. That's bad. Uh, His hard contact index is way below league average at 74 in 2014 and just 16 in those handful of at-bats this year. That's terrible. And yet he seems to have above average power and above average speed. I think this guy's problem is, and if he can correct it, this is where the potential is, is he's got to put the bat on the ball. Yeah, that's it. Once he does that, good things seem to happen. And when he gets on base, good things seem to happen. So that's the thing he has to learn at this point. And, uh, uh, you know, there's so much skill there that in terms of of his potential power and his potential speed that once you've got him on your roster, you kind of hate to let go of him if you can reserve him. But then eventually it becomes taking up a reserve spot and you, you begin to think, I, I, there may be somebody else out there I want to stick on my reserve spot if Alcantara is going to stay in the minors the whole year. It's definitely the thing that you have to look at. Right now we're only projecting him for 32 more at-bats for the whole year. So the uh, BaseballHQ.com analyst covering the Cubs is not uh, optimistic about Alcantara getting back to the big leagues. So that's something that will change very quickly if Alcantara is called up for reasons of underperformance by someone else or injury or, or something along those lines. Uh, and finally, Nick, the BaseballHQ.com market pulse column, that's Matt Cederholm's column where he looks at uh, players who are out there but may be available and certainly are not properly valued by the market. And uh, he does this every week for shallow uh, medium mixed uh, and very deep leagues and uh, one of the names that popped up this week in Milwaukee Gerardo Parra the outfielder yeah you know, Parra is in one, is an interesting situation he's getting more playing time because of, of the the injury to Chris Davis and so uh, as you begin looking at Parra's numbers this this could be at, at age 28 a breakout year for him his his uh, power index is is at a, an all-time high his uh, hard hit contact rate is at an all-time high um, his batting average is at an all-time high. And so uh, and with a hit rate of 35%, maybe that's a little high for him, but uh, not too bad. Uh, and his XBA is at an all-time high. So here's a guy that could uh, could actually have a mini breakout between now and the end of the year. Right now we're at 247 at-bats, five homers, five stolen bases. Uh, easily could uh, put up double digits in both of those if he continues to get playing time uh, for for the remainder of the year. And He's been hot at the time he's been in the lineup, 336 with three homers and four stolen bases over the past month. Uh, Certainly nothing to sneeze at. And he's been uh, very effective over the years with very stable skills. You mentioned a 35% hit rate this year. That's a little high when you look at the last couple of years where he was down around 31%, which is pretty much league average. 
But if you go back a little further than that, 2012, 2011, 33%, 34%. So 35% hit rate is not absolutely a new thing for Gerardo Parra, which makes it a little more projectable. We're, we're looking at Gerardo Parra to finish the year adding four more home runs and five more bags, and there could be more where that came from, depending if he does, as you say, get that playing time. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, the playing time playing time is the issue. Uh, certainly, if he keeps performing at the, at the rate at which he is, he's likely to continue getting the playing time. But uh, that's the issue between now and the, uh, uh, and the end of the season. And of course, Chris Davis's health will, uh, will also impact how much uh, playing time Para gets as well. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again next week and have a happy fourth. Thank you, Patrick. Same to you. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move it over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. Hi, PD. Thanks. The big promotion and Major League debut of the week in a year full of Major League debuts of the week is Michael Sano, Minnesota's outstanding third base prospect, big power hitter. We covered Sano in both our playing time today and call-up space at BaseballHQ.com. But, Jock, I'm curious what you think. This is a jump from AA all the way to the major leagues. Can Miguel Sano survive the jump and even thrive? Well, you know, it's interesting. You and I discussed this uh, similar situation uh, last month with Joey Gallo's promotion, and uh, they're very similar hitters. Uh, um, uh, 75-80 easy power on the 80-20 scale. Um, it's it's tough to say. Obviously, the biggest issue that Sano has going for him is historically subpar contact that can be seen in that 72% uh, rate uh, through his uh, first 200 plus minor league at bats, um, and an average and, a, and an absence of major league experience. Um, obviously, he's going to be playing DH. That might uh, throw him a little bit. He's normally a third baseman. But beyond this, he's he's got the power. He's got good patience. Uh, he's a good athlete uh, who's made a terrific comeback since his Tommy John surgery. And he was red hot in June, so we're going to see, aren't we? 329 batting average in June in the minors at A, and had six home runs out of 15 overall for the year. Can we compare him favorably with Joey Gallo, and is he more likely to be successful? It's it's hard to say. I think he makes a little better contact than Gallo does. Um, I, Gallo did fairly well in his MLB debut. He hit a bunch of homers early on, but uh, obviously later on he began to struggle. Um, I think they're very similar similar types of players. Um, I watched Sano last night. I was actually impressed the way he worked counts. Even when he struck out, uh, he was working the pitcher. He got a hit. Um, but uh, I, I think his, he's basically the same profile as Gallo as a hitter. I think a bit better uh, uh, contact rate historically and probably through the future. Uh, Miguel Sano, right now we're projecting for 141 at-bats between now and the end, which seems low. Eight home runs, uh, 26 RBIs, just a two fourteen batting average with a three hundred on base percentage. Not the greatest numbers in the world, but a, a team that needs a shot of power, like the Twins, but a fantasy team as well, might be able to benefit from Miguel Sano. Uh, it's very possible, as you said, though, Jock, that uh, Miguel Sano could struggle. He's not a, used to being a DH. He certainly has no experience at the major league level. So if he struggles, what options does Minnesota have to unseat him? Well, it's kind of interesting. You and I talked about this earlier. Uh, the Twins demoted Kenneth Vargas uh, after he'd had a pretty decent stretch. He was 9 for 27. I mean, his, his metrics hadn't been good. But they kept him on the club before they went into National League parks to play. And, and obviously, Vargas is a DH. He wasn't going to play. And then they immediately demoted him when they, when they left. But... Uh, 
Vargas is one of those guys who, if he if he does well in the minors, he could come back. And you also have uh, Oswaldo Arcia, whose season just has not had liftoff at all after a very good second half last year. Um, until these last four games, the last four nights, Arsha's had 10 hits. So Sano could be looking over his shoulder a little bit. The Twins have other options. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like they're good options to me. Uh, Arcia has been a contact challenge type slugger in the past, has had trouble staying healthy. Vargas, we've talked about, has been very contact challenged at the major league level. And uh it doesn't sound like any of those guys is an immediate threat, and it sounds to me, Jock, like they've got an awful lot of DH slash left field type guys. Is there a possibility here that Minnesota tries to wangle a trade? Yeah, there is. I mean, Eddie Rosario is no great shakes in left field, but he's he's done the job. He's kept his average above water, and you're absolutely right. All the names that we've talked about are contact challenge, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised at all to see a trade in this next month. I wonder if they'd trade Joe Maurer, assuming anybody would want him. But as a first baseman, uh, Joe Maurer makes a darn good catcher offensively. He's just a, probably the worst offensive first baseman in baseball. And if they could slide somebody over there to do who could actually do some damage power-wise, uh, I wonder if Joe Maurer is an attractive proposition for anybody. Maybe to go back behind the plate, that would be interesting. Uh, the Yankees' rotation continues to be a story jock. And in playing time today, Matt Dodge covered the report that Brian Cashman, the Yankees' GM, says C.C. Sabathia is going to stay in the rotation, even though he's been awful. What does Matt Dodge say about this, and what do you say? It's like Matt said, uh, Sabathia's bottom line numbers have been awful. 5.5 ERA and a 1.4 whip. Uh, the 19 home runs he's given up in 15 starts is tops in the American League, second all of baseball. He's given up nine home runs in his last five starts, and he's got one week in the last six weeks, uh, during which he's allowed... 27 hits and 17 earned runs in his last 23 innings. Uh, interestingly enough, though, he has a 3.79 expected ERA and is 7.9 uh, strikeouts per nine innings and 1.7 walks per nine innings are still outstanding. Uh, it's an 18% fly, home run per fly ball rate that's been uh, problematic. So maybe the Yankees are thinking here that CC is due for some regression and, and maybe some better luck going forward. The Yankees have other options, though, Jock. Uh, they still have Adam Warren, who got pushed back into the bullpen with this decision. Ivan Nova has come off the DL and has gone straight into the rotation. What were the Yankees thinking, pushing Warren out and leaving Sabathia in? Well, Warren has a lot of experience as a, as a reliever. He can come out of the pen. He's very flexible. And, and his upside as a starter is really kind of a number five guy. Um, so, I mean, I think that's one of the things they're looking at. And obviously, Sabathia has a big contract. You know, they're hoping he can, he can justify a little of that. Um, the bottom line is that the Yankee rotation is, is, should be considered in flux for the second half. Uh, due to Sabathia, you got Tanaka's injury wrist. Uh, Nate Evaldi hasn't been particularly good. Not only could Warren step back in, but they also have a, a promising starting pitching prospect named Luis Severino, who has a 2.54 ERA and 72 strikeouts in 74 innings between AA and AAA. He's just waiting in the wings. We're projecting CC Sabathia for the balance of the season to have just a handful of wins, but a fairly decent 372 ERA, certainly better than what he's at now and more in line with his expected ERA, and a 132 whip, which would be a little bit disappointing, 68 strikeouts to come at a at a rate of about eight per nine innings. So he's not horrible. And if he could get that home run ball under control, he'd actually probably be at least serviceable as a fantasy starter, wouldn't he? Yes, exactly. And I think that's what the Yankees are hoping for. In Tampa, the one-time elite starting pitching prospect, Matt Moore, boy, 
Don't you remember when everybody loved Matt Moore so much? He's uh, obviously been out uh, all of 2014 with Tommy John surgery. He's back on the club, and Matt Dodge again looked at Matt Moore at playing time today. Uh, it seems like forever since we thought so much of Matt Moore. What's his outlook now, do you think? Well, it's interesting. If you look back at Moore's history, he had that great, uh, I think it was a playoff start against Texas back in uh, in 2011, and everyone thought he was the second coming, and his minor league uh, record uh, kind of presaged that too. I think he was the number two, number three uh, prospect in all of baseball, the number one pitching prospect in all of baseball at the time. But uh, shortly thereafter, he began to lose velocity. He began to lose the control and the dominance he showed in the minor. And it was kind of a trickle-down thing for uh, two-plus years until early 2014 when he underwent Tommy John surgery. you got to wonder how long this injury was in the making. And this is a guy who's still 26 years old. I still like him as a very, very speculative play. I wouldn't put a lot of stock in him right now, but if you're in a long-term keeper league and you have room, this is a guy I'd be interested in picking up. He certainly did not acquit himself well in his uh, first start of the year on July 2nd. He uh, barely lasted four and two-thirds innings, gave up four earned runs at Cleveland, which is not exactly a tremendous offense. Uh, there's, It's an opportunity if you think Matt Moore can recover, now's the time to jump. Yep, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, he's going to get a rotation shot, and this is a pretty good uh, Tampa Bay rotation. It is a good rotation and has been, but somebody's got to go. If Matt Moore's going to take a regular turn, who's out? Well, right now, uh, Moore's taking Matt Andresi's spot. This is a guy who didn't didn't pitch too badly in place of uh, Jake Odorisi uh, after Odorisi hit the uh, DL with an oblique strain in early June. Odorisi's going to return in uh, early July or maybe at the latest just after the All-Star break, and then Tampa Bay has some decisions to make. But based on the numbers or lack thereof, I would guess that Alexander Colome is probably the most likely guy to be bumped. If you are thinking about Matt Moore, the projections at Baseball HQ are for six wins, uh, 376 ERA, not too bad, 131 whip. He's always been a little control challenged, gives up a few more walks than most people would like. And uh, strikeouts... About eight per game, roughly uh, 63-64 in eight starts to come. Uh, Texas has welcomed back to Josh Hamilton, not for the first time, and they surprisingly to some people sent Joey Gallo back to the minors. Gallo, of course, looked really good with the bat in his uh, brief time with the Rangers, and he played outfield ten times and acquitted himself reasonably well. Jock, you and I have talked about this at length here at Baseball HQ Radio. But as Rod Truesdell noted in his playing time today column, uh, Joey Gallo had some other issues, and I bet I know what one of them is. Yeah, it was a 51% contact rate and uh, and a 218 batting average, and things seemed to be getting worse, uh, not better, uh, um, as as Gallo was 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 going forward. Um, he hit a home run in his first major league at bat, hit a few more, hit five and 87 at bats. Um, and uh, he actually made uh, uh, some outfield appearances as Texas tried to integrate him into the lineup. But that contact rate was basically a uh, a real problem. As you noted in your playing time tomorrow space, talking about the Rangers, and Rod touched upon this as well, center fielder Leonis Martin is not exactly uh, bashing the hell out of the ball, and he's not out of the woods given his mediocre offense. Do you think the Rangers could stick Delino DeShields Jr. into center field once he gets back? Well, if you read the tea leaves, the Rangers sure seem to be focusing on center field. They had Gallo actually start a game there. They had Josh Hamilton playing there in the minors during his rehab. And uh, DeShields, as you noted, uh, uh, had 16 games there um, before he went down with his injury 
Um, so they have options. Uh, the problem is none of them are as good defensively as Martinez. Um, Martinez had some real offensive struggles. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of power. His contact rate's not very good. He doesn't take real good advantage of his speed, although he does have 13 stolen bases and only two caught stealing. So his his running game and his defense are his biggest calling cards. But other than that, he's been pretty bad these last couple of months. So they have a, a few decisions to make in the outfield. You mentioned Hamilton has had some starts out in center field, but that doesn't seem viable as a long-term option. How do you like Josh Hamilton as an offensive force for a fantasy team uh, in the second half? You know, I think he's motivated. I, I think if he stayed healthy, he, he's probably going to um, be decent. I mean, I mean, given the state of hitting these days, I I would love to have a healthy Josh Hamilton uh, in my in my roto outfield in 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 some of my leagues. Uh, the problem is, is you know, how long can he stay in one piece? We're projecting that he's going to stay in one piece long enough to hit 12 home runs, drive in 41, and hit about 270, which is not bad. Uh, remember the good old days when he could steal bases with the best of them. He's going to be down to one or two for the rest of this year. That's just not part of his game anymore. Uh, finally, Jock, the big injury uh, news out of the entire American League was in Houston. George Springer, one of the best young players in baseball, will be going on the DL for six to eight weeks with a broken wrist. And of course, broken wrists are problematic for power hitters even after they come back to, to regular action. You covered this story Friday in your Playing Time Today space, looking at the AL West. Where does this leave Houston and what the heck are they going to do? Yeah, and the first prognosis was that a six-week return was the earliest possible uh, ETA for Springer coming back. Now they're saying it's going to be six to eight weeks, which basically puts him back in Houston uh, maybe at the, the end of August, pretty much after the, the minor league season is over. So how much time he's going to be able to prepare for September? And you note that wrist injuries are, are problematic uh, uh, for, for hitters. This is a big issue for Houston and fantasy owners. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Presley, uh, Alex Presley was called up, uh, to replace Springer on the roster. I think that's just a, a holding pattern, maybe until Jake Marisnik gets better. But Presley's not going to get a lot of playing time. Uh, his, he's got a 259 career batting average and subpar secondary skills. They're going to split this out. Unless they make a trade, they're going to split that, uh, Springer's vacated time. Between Colby Rasmus, Preston Tucker, Domingo Santana, Marisnik, they've got a lot of options. None of these guys have been playing full-time, but none of them have the offense that Springer has. Um, so it, a lot's going to depend on who is hitting and who is producing. I think it's going to be a uh, what-have-you-done-for-me-lately uh, uh, situation in the Houston outfield. Domingo Santana looks like the most interesting of the possibilities just because with Colby Rasmus, we know what we're going to get, a fair amount of home runs, but not much else besides that. And uh, with Domingo Santana's more of a blank slate, and sometimes people project you know, their hopes and wishes onto blank slates, as we know from politics. And uh, Domingo Santana, can he thrive if he gets a little bit of extra time? Well, he's, he's done a lot better than he did last year when he struck out. I think it was 17 times and 19 at bats. Um, he's hit a couple of home runs. He's shown the power. He's a natural right fielder with a good throwing arm. So he's a natural replacement for Springer. But again, like some of the other guys we've talked about, that he's got a 54% contact yeah. rate. So can he keep his batting average, uh, above water to the point where his, 
his uh, his power actually means something, and that's that's the the issue that he's going to wrestle with, and and his fantasy owners are going to wrestle with. At a glance, you look at that two forty three batting average so far. Domingo Santana has two homers and eight RBIs in just thirty seven at bats, and you think to yourself, I can live with two forty three if he's going to hit a home run every eighteen at bats. But here's the problem: his expected batting average is well below that, and his current batting average is supported only by a thirty nine percent hit rate, which even for people who are hitting the ball hard is tough and Domingo Santana for all of his home run power is not consistently hitting the ball hard he has an H a hard contact index of just 47 which is half league average yeah there's a lot of swing and miss there and eventually you know when you're an inexperienced minor leaguer that eventually catches up to you most of the time in the majors obviously you've 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 had exceptions. Uh, guys like uh, Jock Peterson over over in L.A. still amazes me. The fact that he's pretty much played every day and gone through the league now a couple of times, and he's still doing as well as he is. But even his batting average is starting to wear a little bit. Tough times in Houston, and they were having such a terrific year. It'll be very interesting to see how they sort out this outfield situation while Springer's on the DL. And, and even when Marisnik comes back, he's not exactly a tremendous offensive force himself. So they, they do have some issues they have to address, and uh, boy, I don't envy them having to address them. It's so tough to replace a top player, whether in real baseball or fantasy baseball. Jock, thanks a million for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time, and have a great 4th of July. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, does a bit of speculating in the speculator column as well. And, of course, he's our American League beat reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our regular weekly talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. I gambled on, on other sports other than baseball. I never gambled on baseball, but uh, I think I'm uh, being punished pretty severely. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Baseball HQ is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed. Like these features, our Playing Time Today column looks at roster effects of George Springer's wrist injury, the returns of Matt Cain, Patrick Corbin, and James Loney, and much more. In Facts and Flukes, Brian Rudd analyzes the performance of Max Scherzer, Mike Bolsinger, Justin Turner, and many more. And in playing time tomorrow, Ryan Bloomfield covers the National League West with analysis of Chris Owings' struggles in Arizona, Carl Crawford's rehab in Los Angeles, and the Padres' rotation along with others. BaseballHQ.com updates its content every day across a wide range of great information, like our Buyer's Guide Skills Assessment columns, performance validation in facts and flukes, roster changes in playing time today and tomorrow, daily matchups reports, team coverage, minor league scouting, and much more. And we also have great tools like our projections and other roster management systems you can use to help you dominate your league or the daily fantasy space. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined again by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really good to be here, Patrick. Todd, you had a column at FantasyAlarm.com not the uh, too long ago uh, looking at how to build a possible keeper list if you think you're out of the race in 2015. You can start planning for 2016. And before we talk about any players in particular that you like for that purpose, what's your general philosophy of building that uh, keeper list for the subsequent year? Sort of the, my, my priority, if, if at all possible, 
I prefer to minimize my downtime, as it were, and start to compete as soon as possible, in which point I prefer to get major league ready players. And I'm a quality over quantity guy, and I don't mind keeping salary. So that sometimes affords me targets that other people might be shying away from because some people believe the keeper list should be the the cheapest players possible and i don't necessarily i don't well that was i don't believe that at all uh so if if it's a keeper league where there's a lot of turnover and you're able to rebuild fairly quickly because there's so much good stuff in the draft or auction uh i my my philosophy is to go after players that are probably helping their team now which is going to make me not overpay but pay a lot more to get the player uh, as opposed to taking flyers or just trying to get the cheapest, you know, one or two dollar player that may earn five or six, uh, depending upon, you know, AL only might be a little bit different, AL, NL only than a mixed league. But, um, that, that's sort of, you know, my major league and prospects are, I, I don't mind them, but for me, a prospect is just a future trade ship. So while other people like to just sort of, stock up on their prospects unless it's a dynasty league which in, which is which is fine that's what you need to do in a dynasty league in a keeper league you can give me a prospect but i'm probably going to be trading it away uh when i'm starting to make my run as opposed to being sitting on the prospect and and helping them you know help me that particular year you have a good example in the column about opportunity cost and that is it makes no sense to hang on to a guy at a fixed kind of profit even if you assume that the profit will be positive it might just be readily available especially in mixed leagues next year anyway so there's no point right this is very germane to mixed leagues it's not really the case in the al and the nl only league especially now anybody who's trying to pick up players in their single format leagues just know there's just nothing out there so any, anything of quality that you can keep at a reasonable price, you do. Uh, but in a mixed league especially, uh, it doesn't matter if it's an auction or redraft format. There's always that soft period at the end where, you know, bargains are just flying left and right from all positions. You've got older players that, that, that people don't want anymore. You've, you've got players that are non-sexy that, that just don't have the name value that they may have had, and you're getting it for two, three, and four dollars, and they're going to return eight or nine dollars, and they're going to do it next year too. But if you say if you keep one of them, uh, it, it looks like it's a great bargain because you're probably going to get a six or seven dollar profit. But the problem being, there's going to be that player is going to be available anyway, so it's better to have the roster spot available. Worst case scenario, you get that player back or a similar player. Uh, best case scenario is you're able to use that spot for a better deal. Uh, so to me, I think it's especially, especially just in mixed leagues, especially you don't have to keep the really cheap, uh, one or two or three dollar keeper. It's just not worth it. Um, this is where I prefer quality over quantity because if you can get some quality keepers in a mixed league and because just the dynamics that you're going to be these cheap guys at the end, your rebuild can be really quick because there's just so many players available in a mixed league pool. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time in a, in a, in a mixed league, you know, just contributing to the contributing to the winner's pot and just, you know, rebuilding. You can usually do it in one year. 
not so much in single league uh, formats, as you mentioned. My own experience in keeper leagues is with an AL only format, and there's a lot of long term planning that goes into it. And it seems like you're, if you're faced with the possibility of grabbing hold of a one dollar guy who returns seven dollars, might actually be worth getting him. In, in an AL only league, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just I'm trying to think. You know if. You know, for instance, uh, C.J. Crone, for instance, if uh, he he's playing a little bit, he's not playing, he, he's being sent down. If uh, if he's available in an AL or NL only league, he's a guy that I want for a buck or two because that's probably what he costs. He was probably an end game middle infielder out of the promise that he'd be playing some DH for the Angels. So if he's a, you know he's a guy that I I'd like in a keeper league. I do think that the Angels are probably going to be using pool holes more as DH over the next couple of years, and I think Crone will develop into a double-digit earner, and you're right now probably getting him. So he's a, he's a perfect example of the of what you're talking about, a $1 or $2 or $3 player that uh, could even earn a lot more than that. I mean, he, Jace Peterson is another guy. Actually, he's a guy for mixed leagues. He's so good, or at least he contributes so much that I wouldn't mind. But, you know, a guy that was, again, an end gamer um, that I'm going to go after in my mixed league because he probably cost only two or three dollars. Actually, my NL only two, uh, two or three dollars, and uh, is going to earn a lot more than that. Well, of course, we're always looking for the guy who's going to earn a lot more than his salary because that's the kind of thing you win keeper leagues with is by being able to go into the draft rostering $20 for two kind of situation. I think the big uh, dividing line between mixed and keepers is how willing you are to roster a $1 guy who's going to return five or four next year. And, and if anything more, it's just gravy. Whereas, as you said, in a mixed league, that kind of keeper is useless to you. You don't want to keep a $1 or $2 guy even if he's going to pick you up five dollars in profit because it's just not enough profit because that kind of profit's going to be available to you anyways where it's not going to be in an only league right and the, the other difference being that this in, a, in an al or NL only chances are the player is earning more relative to the format in the single league format so it's going to cost you more to get him so it's going to take away some of the assets that you have to get other keepers but again, it's a, it's the impact that that one keeper could have. That one, one or two or three dollar keeper, if he's a fifteen or sixteen or seventeen dollar keeper, he has a heck of an impact on an AL or NL only team, and it could be worth getting him and having a little more salary in the auction uh, or or draft picks in a draft because there's some you know keeper league drafts too that sometimes we forget about. There's ways to uh, convert salary or to, to draft picks that sort of thing so and there's you know inflation in drafts as well because you're keeping guys in the eighth or ninth round that should be taken in the second and third so sometimes we forget about that that our draft runs out there need to hear this too but and the, all they hear about is dollar values but yeah the point being um yeah any anybody that you know james mccann for me, if in an NL, or sorry, an AL, an AL only league, I like him in a mixed league as a, as a back end catcher, but he's a guy that I think is a great target in an AL only league because once a V is back, he's probably going to start to uh, play a lot less. So you can tell his owner this year that you're not going to get the same playing time out of McCann. And if you happen to have one of the, you know, maybe you have Salvador Perez on an expiring contract, I trade Perez for McCann in a heartbeat because you're going to get a cheap McCann probably being a full-time catcher next year. 
This raises an interesting point, Todd, and that is in a keeper league when you're trying to deal with other guys in your league, everybody knows the value of keepers. And if you're uh, reaching out to a guy and trying to wangle a, a 2 or $3 player who might turn 15 or $20 the subsequent year, your trading partner knows that too. And so uh, how difficult does that make it to deal with a, a reasonably smart owner who's trying to build his team for a stretch run and a pennant this year, but at the same time, he's also got a vested interest in keeping his uh, good low-priced keepers because they're at least in part responsible for putting him in first place anyway? Well, it's all de- dependent upon the league and the dynamics and, and how fast a rebuild is and what some of the other precedent with deals is. Um, you know, I think, I think it should hurt to win a keeper league. Dynasty league, less, less so because I think that it's, it's a lot, you don't, the trading is important, but because you get to keep the majority of the leagues, actually maybe should take a step back. And I know that there's no formal definition, textbook definition, but for me, sort of broad based, a keeper league is one in which the, uh, regurgitation, not regurgitation, the, um, the flipping of the players, the regurgitation. Wow, <laughs> the uh, the way that the players, um, they're some they're available. Uh, a lot of them are available each year. The um, in our dynasty league, you keep the majority of your players. There's oftentimes not even a salary implication. It's just you keep almost your whole roster, and the and the draft is usually uh, rookies and and just fringe players. So it's it's the churn. Actually, that's the word I was looking for is churn, regurgitate and churn. Huh. Anyway, so the churn of the roster pool in a keeper league is pretty pretty quick, whereas the churn in a dynasty league is not. So it, it behooves you to hold on to your foundational players that you picked up as a minor leaguer, where in a keeper league they can be as much trade chips as they can be your foundation. So with that, you know, with that as the uh, as the backdrop. Um, now I forget what the question was, <laughs> but uh, to me the, uh, the the keeper league I'm much more willing to uh, keep quality over quantity because I'm able to re uh, replenish my team so much quicker. Well, the the original question had to do with the cost you're going to have to pay a guy to get a top quality keeper off his roster, even though you are compensating him somewhat. In your example, you'll take James McCann, who's a good but not great catcher, and you'll send him, I don't know, Russell Martin or Salvador Perez or somebody like that, who's a bona fide impact catcher that'll help him win the league this year. But increasingly in mixed leagues, the the guy who has that valuable keeper also recognizes that he has future value. And you have to sometimes, especially if that future value is pretty significant, you're going to have to do something to compensate him for the loss of future value as well as the the gain of present value. And sometimes that might even mean giving him a lesser keeper that he can he can at least say to himself, yes, it cost me uh, James McCann, who I thought was going to be a tremendous keeper. And I only got back, you know, a $1, Tory Hunter, who's going to be a borderline keeper, but it's something. Right now, again, the uh, it, it all depends on the league as well. The the um, some leagues you can you can get you know three stars for one prospect. Other leagues, it's it's one and one. That's and true. Yeah. Even within the same league, it's it's how good a horse trader some of the people are within that particular league, and and what their their threshold is to say no, and their how staunch they are about waiting for a better deal. So even when the same you know precedent in a league doesn't necessarily hold true. It's just you know some nego- some players are better negotiators and some owners are strictly better negotiators than others and have just 
know that they can say no and that they're going to get a deal done. I'm not one of those guys. I can't. I just when I walk into you know buy a computer or a car, I just take the first one I want and and I'm done. It's kind of I I, I don't I'm not good at negotiating and and saying no and figuring I'm going to get a better offer. But some people are much better at that, and it, you have to sort of read your league and and go within the context of your league. But most leagues do have a general rule of thumb as far as dynamics go, as far as what is accepted in a in a dump trade, because you have to have that fine line between good for the league and good for the team and, and good for the long-term uh, benefit of the league. You don't want to make one of these fantastic deals for you and have everybody get all up in arms and and quit and change the rules or do this or the other, you know, something like that. Yeah, you're certainly right about that. There's a concept in behavioral economics which has to do with uh, value expectations. And when you enter into a deal in some leagues, as you said, uh, I've been in leagues where Mike Trout got traded and the haul was pretty impressive. And anybody who's in the league and remembers back a, a few years to the Mike Trout deal automatically sets his price tag for his Mike Trout. Maybe it's Chris Bryant in Chicago. So suppose you're holding on to Chris Bryant and everybody in the league thinks, you know, he's he may not quite be Mike Trout or may not quite be Bryce Harper, but he's going to be terrific, especially if your league pricing structure is you get to keep him for three years at a dollar a year or something like that while he's producing 35 a year. Everybody knows that everybody wants Chris Bryant. And if you're trying to acquire him, anybody who's got Chris Bryant says, remember what Mike Trout got? I got to get at least that in terms of, uh, you know, what the, what the haul is going to be for, for this year. And in another league where they're much more uh, careful about making trades, a Chris Bryant deal might get nowhere near that. And it's all based on what has happened in the past with assets of similar value. Right. And there's also a, a cycle within each league of which owners are competing, which owners are rebuilding. And they, within the same league, there's different philosophies, and if you catch a cycle where the the people that are dumping just want to get it over with and move on to other things and uh, accept lesser deals, or you know, or if it's a cycle where the teams that are going for the top are just really, really good at talking other people into making deals and and get a whole lot more for their prospects. So even within the same league, it, it sometimes depends upon which half of the uh, so, you know, are you dumping or are you rebuilding? And if you, you want to be caught on the half where you're just getting the better deal, so it's 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 an inter- it's a different element. It, it, it's more than just knowing you know how to evaluate players and looking for leading indicators. I think it's it's I don't, I'm glad all my leagues aren't trading because you know I don't I think I go nuts having to answer all those emails. But I do think it's a you know it, fantasy baseball doesn't have to be just about baseball. I, they can have some of these other elements that you can have others other skills other than you know being able to you know figure out that a babip's too high and he's going to regress or something like that right. so I, I do think it adds an interesting element but as we're sort of hedging around you, it, there has to be a limit within the league you know you, you can't build the best team and then just have the league just go nuts because you know everybody wants to quit because of such a lopsided trade so that's it's a very fine balance it is, and uh, the fantasy baseball world is full of stories about leagues that broke up or f- almost broke up because of a perceived imbalance in a dump trade. It's the bane of a lot of leagues' existence. Uh, my American League only that I play in, we just stopped having dump trades. Every player in a trade is a free agent at the end of the year, so you can't keep them, so there's no point in it. And it, it has really helped, although it has created something of a different issue, and I'd like to ask you about that, namely... 
it wasn't that long ago, if you were in a trading league, that really the trading uh, would take place near the major league deadline because you had a firmer idea of what categories you could move, where you had opportunity, where you had surplus. But it seems to me that that deadline is moving back and back and back and back towards opening day as we go through year after year, more and more owners dump earlier and earlier. Right, and I think it's just becoming more accepted. I think there used to be, you know, baseball has its unwritten rules. I think uh, fantasy had a few unwritten rules, and one of them was, you know, you don't dump till June or July. But I'm I'm in a league now, and, and Ron Chandler has written about it because he was one of the principals. He made a deal before the season even started uh, with in the XFL, our, our Sudo Industry Keeper League, <clears throat> where he traded away some help for this year and, and got himself three really good prospects. And that was done before the first pitch was even thrown. And it's within the rules, and you know, no one said anything, you know, other than, geez, I, I wish we had thought to approach Steve Moyer before Ron did. There was no, you know, that that was that was the reaction. Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, oh, Ron's gonna, you know, Ron's gonna break up his own league. That's not what the reaction was. So it has to be sort of within the tone of each league as well. But I'm not, ex- you know, I, I just, I think for whatever reason, it's, I don't say monkey see, monkey do, but it's kind of a follow the leader thing where it has become more accepted within people that are writing about it to dump earlier and some of our own you know the websites and the sources have their own house in-house keeper leagues and and, in in which they're dumping earlier and writing about it so if it's becoming accepted i think it's translating down to just you know regular leagues and i think they're beginning to dump a little bit earlier too i think there there can be some rules and I, i actually like there to be some rules that'll somewhat curtail these early dumps i do think it takes away a little bit too much from the draft and for mine the favorite would be a a salary cap and have a uh, salary cap just be a little bit above the the original salary cap early in the league and as you proceed into the season you increase the cap so maybe if it's a 260 dollars budget maybe through the end of may you can have 285 dollars in the cap and maybe by the trading deadline you can have 325 or something like that uh, a slow increase of it so you can make some early trades but you can't make that killer blockbuster early because you're going to put yourself over the cap i think it just it might make people reconsider and, and just not get rid of all their players and move on to other things in april you mentioned the ron chandler trade in the xfl with steve moyer and uh, the trade was uh, um chandler sent troy tulowitzki adrian gonzalez jason worth who probably didn't turn out to be as valuable as all that and the number 16 pick in the first round and got back from Steve Moyer the number five pick in the first round, so a gain of 11. Plus he got Manny Machado, Xander Bogarts, Angel Pagan. And uh, I don't know about Pagan too, too much, but Machado and Bogarts are terrific long-term building blocks in any kind of fantasy or dynasty type league. And so Shander looked like he did pretty well. The aftermath of that deal was that everybody else in the league said there's no point in making trades because Moyer has now run away with the league. Only it turns out Moyer didn't run away with the league, and now... Everybody's trading again, right? Think about think about those players. You know, Jason Worth is is you know I think he's a wash with Pagan. I mean, he's not playing now. Bogarts and Machado are both playing very well. Tulowitzki's he's he's doing fine. And who was the uh, who was the other principal that that Steve got? Adrian Gonzalez. And Adrian Gonzalez, he had a really good start, but he's not he hasn't sustained it. So as far as player for player, Steve hasn't gained all that much. 
if anything, talent-wise, because Machado's just having a good year as well. So, as it, you're right, as it, and Steve did have a huge lead at the beginning of the season, and I'm trying to dump in this league, and I was unable to, uh, I was able to trade little, little players here and there, but I was unable to talk anybody into a, a full out, you know, match Ron and Steve's offer. Here's my guy's sort of, sort of deal. Uh, and as it turns out, there's a battle at the top now, and it's fun because there are a whole ton of, uh, one on one keeper deals that, I mean, I can't, I can't trade all my keepers, but I am able to trade each of them individually to get some help for next year. And it, and it just goes to show too is, if if you had made an offer to somebody uh, a few weeks back and maybe it was respectfully declined, it could be that it's now two more weeks have gone by and that team is is still in the running or maybe even improved their stead. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with 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 you know politely pointing that out to them and retabling or you know saying the offer's still on the table. Uh, you know, or it may even be that they come to you and I, that actually happened in, in the XFL where uh, an uh, an offer that was re- declined a couple weeks ago. That same person has come back and is for the same player has actually made me a better offer than I would have accepted previously because they now know that a few other teams might be after the same player and they want to be the one, you know, they know that I'm willing to trade them. So it's just never, you know, pay attention to what's going on. Don't assume anything, especially in a keeper league. There's still a lot of time between now and the deadline that, 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 uh, some teams are going to still hang in it, and, and if you're in the borderline, another team's going to fall out of it, and you'll be able to make trades with that team uh, to get their keepers. So this is an interest. It's going to be an interesting couple of weeks in, uh, in in keeper leagues to see you know where everything that 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 buy sell line is very transient. And I think even as uh, the the uh, heavy trading period moves back, and even before opening day, as it has been in a lot of leagues, it has in our league because we have this no dump trading rule once the season starts. But even in leagues where you can dump trade, it's being done earlier and earlier. And I think a really good tactical idea, if you have players that you want to trade, is to wait until way later in the year because uh, a lot of the best laid plans in that early period, like uh, Steve Moyers, for instance, or everybody in the league thinks nobody can catch Steve, it turns out because things happen that that's not the case, that the that the race is much more competitive than everybody thought. And if you're the one guy who hung on to his prospects, the race will have clarified to a much greater extent in mid to late July than it was in mid to late March. And you may be in a position to really drive a decent bargain for yourself, whether you're dumping for next year or going for it this year, whether either of those things is a surprise to you. Right. I think there's a real life, real life. There's a major league example in that in Cole Hamels, in that Philadelphia, I mean, it's it's sort of a foregone conclusion that they're going to trade him. But they didn't trade him in the spring, even though you can use the argument that you can get more for him in the spring because you, you, the team gets the entire year, not just two or three months out of him. But, you know, the counter argument, which you just alluded to, being right, but if you increase the necessity for a team to get him, you know, for the need for him to, to help him get to the playoffs, you can squeeze him at the deadline as well. And I think it's the same sort of conundrum here is, uh, you know, not necessarily the same, you know, but, you know, am I, is it better to trade? And given, uh, give the, you know, like Ron and Steve didn't give Steve an entire year's worth of, of Tulowitzki, or would it have been better to wait to the deadline? And now, you know, if you're going to dangle Machado, what would, what would Machado have, uh, uh, what would, you know, what would he bring back right. now? Um, 
if Steve had waited, you know, to the deadline now, would he have brought back even more? Uh, but he decided, you know, to get the full year's worth out of those other players. Um, I don't know. I'm going it, to, it's, it's one, you know, you're playing a game with yourself. You have to know your league and, and hope that teams are actually cognizant enough and willing to go for it. The, the thing with this XFL, I call it a pseudo keeper dynasty league in that the, the elevation of contracts is, is, is very, very slow for minor leaguers. So the churn isn't quite as great, but there's still some churn there. I think actually think it's kind of a neat concept because you can play it as a keeper or you can play it as a dynasty. Um, so one of my frustrations with this league is year after year, the winners win and, you know, still have Byron Buxton on their keeper list. Um, if, you know, a true keeper league, if the winner had Byron Buxton on their keeper list, I would not be happy because, uh, you know, that's the sort of player that the winner should be dealing away. But in a dynasty league, it's not necessarily the case. So what kind of players were you looking at in your column as potential building blocks for 2016 and beyond? Right. Now, so the, again, the philosophy, this is in a mixed league, and for whatever reason, these players were to go cheaper, you know, now or at the beginning of the year than, than they're worth now, whether it's because they just they matured or, or their role has changed or whatever. But I let, I led the list off with Jace Peterson, who was going to be the placeholder for Jose Peraza. There's a whole lot of us out there that got Peraza on reserve and assuming we we're going to get stolen bases at this point and, and aren't because of Jace Peterson. Uh, but, and I think that the fact that Atlanta's looking to make Peraza an outfielder, uh, is a hint that they're happy with Peterson at second base. And if he's going to stay at second base and producing as he's producing, I think he's going to an OBP upside of in the 350 to 360 range. He's not quite there yet. Uh, I think there's, this is a guy that you're going to want on a mixed league team in the middle infield, getting you some steals and just locking down one of those middle infielders. Uh, so that's, that's a guy like that. And he probably went really cheap early. If, if Now, there's a possibility that he went as a free agent and that the free agent keeper salary might be 10, 10 or $15, depending on the league. And if he was picked up as a reserver in the end game for a buck or two, that you know, some of these players I talk about might not be cheap keepers depending upon your rules. It's all contextual, uh, which is kind of interesting that if he was so bad that he wasn't drafted, he actually costs more to keep than if he was just good enough to get drafted in the end game. But uh, one of my favorite ones is it, it sort of this actually it really demonstrates the concept is AJ Pollock in that you know he's a really good player now. You're gonna it's gonna cost you a lot to just compensate his present owner for what he's going to produce for the next at this point what three months plus you have to give him some keeper value but he's the kind of impact keeper because in a mixed league he probably costs single digits at the beginning of the year and i've got him as a 20 25 dollar player going forward so there's a ton of profit there um so he's not the he's not the tory hunter where you get it for a buck or two and he's going to earn six or seven you can get him again next year you're not going to get Pollock for a, for a buck or two next year. He's going to be in the 20s. So he's a guy I'd be going hard after in, in a mixed league. Uh, Xander Bogarts is another guy that, uh, if you watch the Red Sox play, you may think he, he doesn't look excited. He doesn't have that look, but he is a competitor. He is learning the position. Don't let that nonchalant cavalier sort of manner fool you. He's, um, he's, he, he's now beginning to show why he was so high on prospect list. I know there's injuries in Boston, but he's been hitting way up in the order and producing. So a couple more players, but those are Randall Gritchick is, is another one of my favorites in that uh, he 
was called upon because of injury. His glove plays, his power plays, convince his owner that that contact rate and the lack of walk rate will will catch up to him this year and, you know, get him. And St. Louis does wonders with players. They'll fix that. And next year you're going to have yourself a heck of a keeper in Randall Gritchick. You also mentioned Francisco Lindor of Cleveland uh, came up as a top prospect, but more glove than hit was the was the knock on him, and it seems so far to have been at least somewhat justified. So, uh, it it seems like you you know you don't even need to mention Carlos Correa, you don't need to mention Chris Bryant and so forth, because everybody wants those kind of prospects. It's a no brainer. What is it about a guy like Lindor that makes you think he's a potential building block for a for a rebuild? He's available, and I think it's the you know you can get a a Correa or a Brian or a Buxton, but I just you know the the name value, the sexiness of having that prospect, he's just going to cost you so much. And maybe you can get him, and if you can, great. But someone like Lindor, um, you know, he's he's sort of the uh, you know the the cute neighbor next door that you actually have a chance uh, to to go out and talk with and, and not be embarrassed. Um, I think that with some of these prospects, we. We sort of want the narrative to be the case, and the narrative on Lindor is he's uh, all you know better glove than he is hitter. But I've also heard comparisons to Eric Ibar and Alcides Escobar, and these guys aren't bad players, especially in NAL only league. Uh, if you know if I can lock up Eric Ibar on my team at what the equivalent of a minor league salary would be for three years, and then you know being able to pay him a little bit more. Uh, you know, for the next couple of years, as most keeper league contracts do, I'd love to do that. Lock him into my middle infield. Uh, so that's what I think you're doing with Lindor is you're getting, uh, you know, a, a single digit player for the next couple of years, and maybe you give him the raise to to ten dollars or whatever. So you've got a a player under your control for five or six years, and he might not be Eric Ibar next year, but by year three through six, you now have you know Eric Ibar on the cheap. So I think he's he's a guy that I, I don't mind. And, and the, the amount to get him, the cost to get him is probably going to be less than some of these other guys. So if it doesn't work out, okay, it didn't work out. But the, 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 the risk is far outweighed by the reward. The reward, in case it does work out to me, is huge. And he's hitting second. He does steal. Um, I think that there's some, uh, there's some fantasy potential in a guy like Lindor. You also see some potential in a guy like Mike Moustakas, and I'm wondering, uh, Todd, is this because he's been beaten down so badly because of year after year of subpar performance that now that he seems to be turning it around, maybe guys don't believe it, maybe guys don't think it's for real, and, and maybe you could get Mike Moustakas at a reasonably good price for a few years because of that track record. Right, well, you know, AL only leagues, you know, it's not even a question because anything that breathes. But I'm talking more in a mixed league, and you're right, you're right, he's been beat down, but it's very interesting in that he's improved his contact rate. This is now going to be the fourth consecutive season, and contact's really not his problem. So to, to improve on a rate that was uh, approximately you know 18% strikeout rate, that was about 18%, and to improve on that every year, that says something because... It, there's not a whole lot of room for improvement, but yet he keeps 18 to 16 to 13 all the way down to 10 or whatever it might be this year. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. But the fact that he's trending in that direction, to me, means that it's sustainable. Now, he's got a high BABIP this year. Um, you know, He's certainly not going to repeat the exact numbers, but 
I'm going through a, a little thing in, in, in a, a mixed labor, a 15-team mixed labor. Just can't get a third baseman. I didn't want to. I didn't get anybody to top, so I ended up with Lonnie Chisenhall. Uh, if I had potentially gotten someone like Nick, Nick Castellanos, the point being, in a mixed league, third base pool is, is still pretty weak. I mean, there there are some decent players, but the third base pool isn't all that great. If I can lock Mike Mustakas in in my mixed league as my mixed league third baseman, knowing he's going to play every day and at least give me some batting average and a little bit of power, I'll do it. And keep in mind where what this is about, what the price was at the beginning of the year. He was he was drafted in mixed leagues, but he did it didn't cost anything. So if I'm getting myself a ten or eleven dollar player for a buck or two or a, a late round draft pick, I think I can wrest Mike Mustakas from his owner right now, and I don't mind at all knowing that I've got third base locked up in my mixed league next year. 22% strikeout rate in 2012, then 18, then 16, and this year just 12%. He's got an 88% contact rate, which is uh, the equivalent of 12% strikeout rate, and that is really good. And, and even at 82% was pretty good, but at 88%, it's w- well above league average. Still not enough power for a lot of people. Maybe uh, that's something that's growing over time, and maybe you can catch it in 2016 as he hits his age 27, uh, the start of his peak years, I guess. Uh, the last name I want to bring up is uh, shortstop for the Pirates, Jung Ho Jong, the Korean guy who came over at age 28. He's no kid, but you say that this is a guy that may be worth targeting as a cheap foundational type of player. Right. Now, he may have cost a little bit just because of the name, but I, I checked a number of leagues, and he's at a keeper price, and the club at the beginning of the year wasn't sure if he was going to be a regular, was he going to play third, was he going to play short, will his glove play, and heck, will his power play, because there weren't a whole lot of comps coming from Korea, as opposed to the Japan League, and some of the Japan hitters, their power hasn't sustained coming over, even the hitting tool hasn't sustained as, as well, so there was a whole lot of questions about about Jung, and they've been answered at least as much as you can answer in, in a couple months, it looks like he's his glove and his stick will play. Now, you know, the the angle right now is they're giving him some frequent rest. They're saying to keep him healthy. Of course, Pittsburgh is has designs in the playoffs, as they should. So they're looking, and they, do, they have got a, a ton of movable parts, so it's not as if they're going to lose a whole lot by putting Mercer in at shortstop or, or something to that effect. So they're giving him some rest. So if you can use that as your angle and you can and deal away a, a regular shortstop on an expiring or a high contract and get back Jung or even third baseman, depending upon where his team might have him, you, you're going to have yourself what should be a regular next year. Having gone through the rigors of the major league season this year, he should be ready to play 150 games next year at a, at a minimal cost. And I don't know what his position eligibility might be because who knows exactly where he's going to be playing the rest of the season. But at minimum, you got yourself a shortstop middle infielder at a real nice cost. Lock that in and, you know, go go from there, so to speak. Yeah, I think uh, Zhang also has some third base eligibility. I don't know if he's going to retain it, but he's got 37 games at third this year, 22 at short. So in at least next year, he's going to have corner and middle infield eligibility. Yep. And increasingly, people are recognizing that as a definite uh, value aspect that you can't really underestimate. Right, I'm learning. I'm mentioning the mixed labor. I'm learning that as well. And even I mean, I knew it, but for whatever reason, 
sometimes you get away from it or, or you think you're you think you're better than it and you don't you know you know I don't need the edge well yeah yeah you do and uh, I'm regretting not having flexibility in a couple leagues me too um, you know stubbornly maybe not paying for it or whatever uh, I think we talked about it a few weeks back as far as uh, reevaluating cost uh, not so much for scarcity, but because of in-season replacement. To me, that's more than anything else. If you've got someone like Zhang that you can flip between the equivalent of four different positions, third, short, middle, and corner, it's going to really help your ability to get a uh, the best available free agent on a on a deep league pool. To because sometimes there are weeks that you just aren't able to pick up anybody just because there's no one that qualifies. Having some flexibility like that certainly helps you're able to you know keep the team at, at its maximum strength. And before we uh, get off this topic altogether, in your honorable mentions list, you included a name that really jumped off the page at me, Dalton Pompey, the outfielder in Toronto. Uh, right now it doesn't look like he has a place to play and he's not doing that well in the minor leagues. What would uh, be so attractive to you about a guy like Dalton Pompey who seems uh, on the outside looking in? Now that you mention it, I'm kind of when you know those of us that write these articles, I I need to write myself notes. I meant to write the note that some players are are you go after as throw-ins, and he would be that. He would be a guy that I would ask for as a throw-in, as a as a sweetener, as a way to balance something. Uh, I wouldn't make him my main target, but if you you know if you get you know this guy, if you're trading away, you know maybe it takes two keepers, two two non-keepers to get one keeper. So maybe you say, well, all right, I'm giving you two. All right, give me Moustakis and Pompey, and I'll give you, you know, a better third baseman and in a, in a decent outfield or something like that. So he'd be more of a throw-in, um, at least, at least in a uh, in a in a mixed league. In an only league, I can see maybe going after him on the fly, but um, similar to C.J. Cron, I think that these guys could be more throw-ins to me than they would be uh, main targets. Wilmer Flores is borderline. I just don't know. I think he can hit. and I know he can hit in this major league level. I just I don't know for sure that he's going to have a position, So, which is why I didn't include him in the main list because I think he fits the, the Xander Bogarts type uh, profile. I'm just not 100% convinced they're going to have a position for him. So he would be a throw-in as opposed to a, a target. Same with Rosny Castillo, unfortunately. Because uh, I think that I don't, I don't know for sure. Who's to say the Red Sox don't, you know, platoon him next year unless he shows something over the second half this year? Um, I to right now he's sort of a, a two for one guy. He's the two to make a two for two. I'd like to mention that uh, Dalton Pompey in the minor leagues uh, in Double A they sent him all the way back to Double A and yeah. he did all right. Uh, with six home runs and 100 at-bats, but he's got 102 at-bats at AAA Buffalo, no home runs, and three stolen bases, which I guess is okay, but his on-base percentage is under 300 at AAA, and that's uh, that's not a good sign. Uh, Todd, before we uh, let you go, I wanted to talk to you about FAB. And it used to be the case that in mixed leagues, it was kind of a just spend it as you need it. It wasn't really that big of a deal. And, of course, in only leagues, people often hoarded their fab in expectation of a big league crosser. The best example I can ever think of is Teixeira moving from Atlanta to Texas or vice versa a few years ago and uh, really just knocking the cover off the ball while he was in the new league. But 
more recently, because of the number of prospects who are coming up and the way they're bleeding into the year, you're starting to see mixed league guys uh, thinking about holding on to their fab because they want to have the big wallet when Byron Buxton gets called up, as I did in Tout Wars recently, but also all the other prospects who are coming into the league in dribs and drabs. You want to be well positioned to grab one of those guys. Is that a, is that a new thing that's going to stand or is it just a fluke of this year? I think there's a few different things in play here because I've I've been thinking about this. I I alluded to it and I do my my fab write ups on on Masters Ball for Monday for t- Labor and Tout um, because I'm you know in a couple of mixed leagues and and trying to always try to stay ahead of the curve. So that's what I thought was was you know maybe I need to keep you know everything's contextual in your league. If you've got injuries, you've got injuries and you need to replace them. But maybe you need to be a little bit more uh, aggressive on getting some of these prospects and, you know, you need to have the fab to, to be able to do it. I think that major league teams, especially because there are so many more teams in the running now, I mean, look at Houston, you know, promoting Korea because they're, there's, they're, they're going to have, they're going to be a shot at the playoffs. And, you know, the, the, the Cubs with, with Bryant, they have a shot at the playoffs. And the earlier they, these guys get promoted, the better shot that the team has of making the playoffs. I think what's going to happen, though, is people are going to be more willing to, to to put them on their reserve list at the auction or at the draft itself. So I think what you need to sort of do is uh, pay attention during your draft and your auction, and if you see people putting some of these minor leaguers on there, either do it yourself or just realize that they're not going to be available for you when they come up. And the other thing being, too, as you alluded to, I think this is an exceptional year, uh, ex- exceptional being... Uh, very good and also an exception that there's just so many of these talented players being promoted this year. It's just a cycle where I just think there's more, um, rookies. If you're in a league, if in, in a dynasty league and I'm, in, I'm in a stratomatic league where I'm talking to my, my partner about this now is, uh, this is the year you want to have a ton of first round or a ton of early picks because the rookie cards in stratomatic are going to be through the roof. Um, might not be the case going forward. Uh, I'm not saying that the miners are being you know, depleted because of all these kids. I just think it just happens to be one of those years where there's just a ton of, you know, Stephen Matz just came up last week, pitchers too. There's just a ton of talent coming up into the into the to the majors. It's kind of fun from a baseball fan's point of view. In Tout Wars, the mixed auction this year, uh, uh, Chris Bryant went in the actual auction part, and I think for ten or eleven dollars, and which raised a few eyebrows at the time. And then you had in the reserve rounds, uh, I grabbed Syndergaard and and uh, Jung Ho Jong. I, I know somebody grabbed Patrick Corbin coming back from injury. Somebody paid for uh, Jose Fernandez coming off Tommy John. So it does seem like increasingly people are willing to use their paid slots to grab guys who are going to be sometime down the road and not immediate help. And then, of course, they grab somebody in reserve to replace that guy and fill the slot, and they're willing to do that, betting that the amount of value they derive from the slot after Jose Fernandez comes back makes up for the loss of it while he's still on the on the DL or in the minor leagues. Right. Now, you mentioned uh, Bryant. It was... Bryant was one that was fairly documented that the Cubs were going to just wait the initial two-week period and not the full Super 2 amount of time. Uh, so I think that that was a risk well worth taking in a mixed league. I don't think Correa was drafted. I don't think anybody expected Correa to come up. So, you know, he's a guy that, you know, maybe next year, if there's a, a similar minor leaguer, 
and there, even though if, if there's no talk of him coming up, maybe you throw a couple bucks at him. I mean, Byron Buxton, I think at, at, in, during draft time, was fairly well accepted that he would be up around mid-year. He came up a little earlier, and of course he got hurt, but he's a guy that I think, you know, at least going forward, people are going to, uh, players of his ilk, if there's any chance of all of the player coming up, or yeah, they're going to put him on their reserve list uh, or, you know, a buck or two in the auction and then backfill from their reserve list uh, just so they don't have to get into these fab fights because it's just the way the game is now. I think you mentioned a couple times before, it's so many decisions now are made in case they work as opposed to because you think they'll work. And part of that bothers me, but that's just part of the game. And I think that sort of thinking is not just, I think it transcends everything. <laughs> so I, you know, you, you can't, it's just, that's just the way the game is played and, and, and stuff like that. So, uh, you just got to take a chance on these kids and, uh, you know, throw the MLEs and everything else out the window and, you know, bet on the come. Peraza was drafted on reserve in that league, a couple of other guys as well. So your point is well made. A lot of it depends on the expectation that the player will be called up at some time during the year. That's oftentimes just based on news and noise in the preseason with very little uh, to recommend it in terms of actual factual uh, knowledge. Carlos Rodon, I think, was another guy that was uh, widely perceived to be on the way up, and that turned out to be the case. So uh, it, it is getting interesting in how FAB becomes important in mixed leagues in a way that uh, up until recently it was never thought of it was just kind of a you needed to hold on to your money in case you needed to fill a, an injury spot or a demotion spot and uh, and get in there and, and compete but now there's lots of reasons to have money and it, it introduces a whole new tactical way of thinking for mixed leagues yeah the other thing and i'm very i'm a very liberal spender and i think this is more of my thinking than anything else it's not so much don't spend and hoard but don't be so aggressive early. I mean, be aggressive, but don't completely knock yourself out of being able to get one of these prospects too. I mean, I I think that if you need to get a guy early, you need to get the guy early. But in a mixed league, I don't. I think I may have been overly aggressive with uh, with some early bids. So it was, to me, that was more of my my personal conclusion was early, on, especially in, in mixed labor, which doesn't have Vickery like the mixed tout does that I should, you know, dial it back a little bit and uh, and not be so overly aggressive on these players because I just had no chance at a Steven Matz. I had no chance at a Carlos Correa uh, because I, you know, made sure, you know, I mentioned my third base conundrum, uh, making sure I had filled some holes early. I had some holes at catcher earlier too because I was in the, uh, you know, John Jay, so he's not going to get hurt because he's DH boat. Well, so much for that. So uh, I think that was my personal, everything you have to think about your own team and your own league. Uh, I have to dial back on how aggressive I am in mixed leagues to uh, save a little something something for some of these kids that are coming available. There's always something to think about with fantasy baseball. That's what makes it fun. I really appreciate you taking the time again, Todd, and we'll talk to you again next Friday. Have a real safe and happy 4th of July. Yeah, you too. I'm hard time typing with fewer than 10 fingers, so I'm going to be real careful. <laughs> All right. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, for ESPN, Masters Ball, Fantasy Alarm, and as I say every week, wherever Todd Zola is writing, you ought to be reading. When we come back, it's our regular Friday commentaries. We'll have pitcher matchups and master notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you. So we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. 
Send your email to bh2radio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Tavitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we'll have Ray Murphy with Master Notes. And now, our pitcher matchups report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on his opponent, the park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with a matchup rating of plus 2 or higher while we suggest you avoid pitchers whose matchup ratings are below zero. Everything in between is a cost-benefit analysis for you to decide on your own. Now looking at our July 4th blockbuster matchup with Matt Harvey of the Mets in Los Angeles to face Zach Greinke and the Dodgers, and more, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Canada Day was this past week for our neighbors to the north, including podcast host Patrick Davitt, and Saturday is Independence Day for the U.S., It's also the halfway point for the 2015 season, as 26 teams will have played 81 or more games after this weekend. Interestingly, the Kansas City Royals have played the fewest games, perhaps because they're busy voting for themselves to play in the All-Star game. So let's use the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to find some All-Stars for your fantasy rosters this weekend. With the New York Mets' six-man rotation, Matt Harvey is becoming a weekend warrior for us, getting his third consecutive mention on weekend matchups. Last week, he missed a PQS 5 score by one strikeout, and his matchup rating of 163 is not bad at all this Saturday either. But the Mets are in L.A., and the New Yorkers are in over their heads at pitcher-friendly Dodger Stadium. The former Brooklyn boys send out Zach Grenke with a matchup rating of 343 and nothing but PQS dominance starts at home. Five straight PQS fives and 15 of 16 PQS dominance starts overall. The lone exception, a PQS three at Coors Field. Against teams that are at 500 or above like LA, the Mets rank 25th at 11 and 21. On the road, they rank 29th at 11 and 26. New York's so-called offense has been absent of late, dropping them into a tie for 28th in run production at 3.5 runs per game. The Dodgers rank third at home with a record of 27 and 13, fourth against right-handed pitchers at 38 and 27, and tied for 10th in run production at 4.3 runs per game. Expect Harvey to pitch well again, but Grenke should prevail. The St. Louis Cardinals are one of four teams with both their Saturday and Sunday starters earning recommendations. Lance Lynn has a matchup rating of 310 for his Sunday start versus Ian Kennedy and his matchup rating of 137. The Cards are at home in pitcher-friendly Bush Stadium to face the San Diego Padres. But the Saturday game deserves our attention because it demonstrates the emergence of the Cardinals' Carlos Martinez. 
Martinez faces Odrisamir Despagne. Despagne has a matchup rating of 053. And Martinez does him two better at 253. St. Louis has the best record in Major League Baseball, the best home record, the best record against right-handed pitchers, and the second best record against teams under 500 like San Diego. In eight starts since May 20, Martinez has six PQS 5 scores, a 4 and a 3. He has a ground ball fly ball ratio of 55% to 25% and 100 strikeouts in 93 innings pitched. The two knocks on Martinez are his control of 3.8 and his strand rate of 81%. But BaseballHQ.com pitching guru Stephen Nickgrand can explain. In his analysis of starting pitchers with and without runners on base, Nickgrand shows that Martinez's skills actually improved with runners on base. As of June 22, with no one on, Martinez had a control of 5.0 and a base performance value of 76. With runners on base, he cut his walks in half with a control rate of 2.6 and a BPV of 132. And with runners in scoring position, his control stayed at 2.6, his dominance shot up to 11.2, and his BPV up to 156. Martinez is looking more and more like the real deal. For the interleague encounter on Sunday, Cleveland's Danny Salazar gets to bat against Garrett Cole in Pittsburgh's pitcher-friendly PNC Park. Cole has a matchup rating of 190 and has been stellar save for a slip-up against Cincinnati June 24. He has not allowed more than three earned runs in any of his other 16 starts, averaging a PQS score of 4-2. Cole has an exceptional BPV of 142. And Salazar does Cole two better, too with a matchup rating of 204 and a BPV of 146. Both teams average 4.1 runs per game. Pittsburgh ranks 6th in home record and Cleveland ranks 6th in road record. But the Pirates show no mercy against teams under 500 like the Indians, ranking 4th with a record of 29 and 13. Against teams at 500 or better like the Bucks, the Tribe ranks 25th at 24 and 34. So pick either pitcher in this one but give a slight edge to Cole's team. There are a few other matchups worthy of interest, even if not analysis. Which De La Rosa do you like better on Sunday? Arizona's right-handed Ruby De La Rosa? He's at home in hitter-friendly Chase Field with a matchup rating of 204. And he faces Colorado lefty Jorge De La Rosa, who brings in a slightly better matchup rating of 233. You can pick a De La Rosa, either De La Rosa. And finally, be aware of these three negative matchup ratings. Steven Matz's minus 1-0, Eduardo Rodriguez's minus 002, and Steven Strasburg's minus 094. So this weekend, don't be despondent over Despagne, Matz, Erod, or Strasburg. Get the real deal with Martinez, Harvey, Grenke, Salazar, Cole, and either De La Rosa. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at Jimmy Paredes, is it a feel-good story? Not for me. Here's BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy. Jimmy Paredes is one of the biggest surprises of the 2015 season. Called up to Baltimore in April, he has been incredibly productive. Batting in the number two spot in the potent Orioles lineup, Paredes is hitting 319 with 10 home runs and a couple of stolen bases in the first half of the season. His stat line is worth a cool $23 in AL only formats. 
This from a guy who wasn't on anyone's radar in the preseason. These out-of-nowhere performances aren't all that unusual, of course. Truth be told, they happen all the time. Last year, we had examples like J.D. Martinez and Steve Pierce from the hitter pool, and pitchers like Jacob deGrom, Colin McHugh, Matt Shoemaker. These are feel-good stories, and they're part of what keeps our games unpredictable. But I'm having a different reaction to Paredes. I'm not feeling good about it. Not even a little bit. I have some history with Paredes, actually. He was on my radar screen entering this season. When he first reached the majors back in 2011 with the Astros, he ended up on the roster of an arch-rival in one of my leagues. This was a dynasty league where essentially everyone in MLB got rostered. While Paredes didn't do anything special that year, he still ended up being a helpful chip for my rival. And of course, Paredes was only 22 when he debuted, so my rival thought he had a developing asset there. But then a funny thing happened. Paredes essentially disappeared. He spent 2012 and 2013 riding the AAA shuttle, putting up some good numbers in the minors, but never getting an extended shot in Houston. And remember, the Astros were outrageously terrible in those years, and Paredes spent them toiling in the minors for the most part. I remember my rival lamenting this, questioning why the Astros wouldn't let him play in the majors those years, and me snickering to myself, um, because he stinks? That might be harsh, but it wasn't exactly an unfounded view either. Paredes profiled as a contact hitter who didn't make enough contact. There wasn't enough power or speed in his minor or major league track record to give much hope that he would ever be a fantasy asset. Then last year, he finally escaped Houston, passing through Kansas City on his way to Baltimore. But again, he never got a shot. 63 major league at-bats last year, and a pedestrian 753 OPS in the minors. Then, this April, he gets a call and gets plugged into the lineup in Baltimore. Credit where it's due, our Chris Olsen was quick to spot the potential with Paredes. After Paredes debuted on April 18th and had a hot first week, Olsen gave him a pretty solid endorsement in his April 26th playing time tomorrow column. But personally, I wasn't buying it. This looked to me like a fluke. But then it kept going. Still, regression seemed to be the safest bet. Even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, that was the take from our Ryan Bloomfield in a fact and fluke write-up on Paredes. So, needless to say, I didn't claim Paredes in any of my leagues, even when he started hot. I thought I knew who he was. A waste of fab. Heck, I don't even think I've used him once in DFS play this year. In fact, just the other night, I had a DFS lineup with a stack of Oriole hitters. I had their 1, 3, 4, and 5 hitters. Manny Machado, Adam Jones, Chris Davis, Chris Parmalee. I skipped the number 2 hitter, Paredes. Guess who hit the only Orioles home run that night? Yep. You might be thinking that I should just let go of my bias and get on the Paredes bandwagon for the second half. But I don't think I can do it. I'm too committed to the anti-Paredes camp at this point. Even though I have a couple of teams doing pretty well, Paredes seems to embody all the things that have gone wrong for my teams this year. Rationally, there are a lot of good reasons to expect him to cool off, but he's been so good for 200-plus at-bats now that even if he goes belly-up tomorrow, he's still going to be a net asset for the people who rostered him. This is the kind of pickup that swings races, and I'm on the outside of it. And I think I'm there for the right reasons. That is why I don't feel good about Jimmy Paredes. All I can do is go try to find the next out-of-nowhere performance. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is BaseballHQ.com's co-general manager and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 3rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 39 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of our show. It was Todd Zola. I always enjoy our weekly talk with Todd, and I hope you like it as much as I do. I also want to thank our other contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I do hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in touch with BaseballHQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And of course, don't forget our email address, bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Be the first to know when a new show is ready for download. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the show going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday, when our Tuesday tout will be MLB.com blogger and Tout Wars mad trader Fred Zinke. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Have a happy and safe 4th of July, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.